We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Mikel Arteta is trying to convince Stan Kroenke to spend some money on deadline day. He's not doing a good job convincing him on the pitch. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Yeah, look, you need to suck. If you suck, then you can convince the guy to spend money. But we we do not suck. We do the opposite of sucking. What's the opposite of sucking? Ruling? We rule. And we literally rule the whole of the Premier League because we're sitting on top of the table. Get this. We've won every single football game we played. That's the goal. That's literally the goal. Every time you kick off a football game, the goal is literally to win it. And we're literally doing that. So whatever your complaints, like just bear in mind that every single time Arsenal Football Club plays a football game, we win the football game. Um, There's a lot to dig into. There are injuries. I went full whiskers on Twitter, started melting down, started tweeting about players missing. Like, it's just what I do. I had to revert to nature eventually, and I got there. Um, So that's happening. There was the performance. This... Pod is being recorded as deadline day is not slamming shut. It's open still. It's going to slam shut because that's what windows do. Apparently, no one knows how to just gently close the deadline day window. They only know how to slam it shut. So we're going to talk a little bit about the rumors that are flying out there. We're going to spend most of the time on the Villa game because I thought about should we push the pod back and just do it post window, but it'd be sad not to talk about this game and talk about United upcoming. That's all the big stuff. So we will have something tomorrow on summarizing the deadline Uh, maybe even an instant reaction to the deadline closing. But for now, we'll just touch on it, and then we're going to dive right into Villa, United, injuries, all of that, great performances. Tim, let's just quickly do a roundup. Bellerin to Barca looks like it might be on. Maitland-Niles leaving. Aubameyang has arrived in Chelsea, it appears. Liverpool panic buying Arthur Mello. Like, I can live with that. Certainly seems fine by me. But the one big Arsenal rumor that's now popping up is Douglas Louise. And I'm curious what you make of that. It, It... it's leading me to believe that whatever our interest in Tielemans, we weren't convinced of him enough. Louis not quite the same player, but maybe enough similar qualities, but maybe with a little bit more six to his eight than eight to his six, if you follow my meaning. How do you feel about the Douglas Louise rumors? We certainly would expect that a guy with one year left on his deal, playing for Steven Gerrard, which can't be fun, 
would be desperate to help us get this over the line. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, my my first reaction is: Has anyone ever scored against a team and signed for them the next day before? Because <laughs> that that feels pretty unique. I don't remember that happening. On on Douglas Louise, I kind of have mixed feelings, and and it's really about where this goes. Now, in principle, if he's the long, you know, if he's the like the El Nenny replacement overall, then then I'm kind of fine with it, particularly for the price and everything. I do wonder why. We extended El Nenny's deal and just didn't do this deal instead. That's a good point. Um, if if that's the case, because Douglas Louise has been on the market for quite a while, um, he was he was up for sale last summer as well. It, it, well, he always made it clear he wasn't extending his pillar contract, so there would have been a deal to do last summer, not inexpensively, to be fair. And this summer is definitely, but let's face it. That wasn't our plan. It became our plan because we got two injuries. I have to be honest, I'm always a little bit wary when that happens. It always makes me think, you know, what if those two injuries had happened a week later and then you've kind of got your options and you're already saying you're not happy with those options. Now, I get it that Partey and any play the exact same position, but, you know, this does just happen in a season. Like two guys getting injured, it happens um, and, and I think if you don't think your squad is resilient enough to cope with that, then you probably should have just done this deal anyway um, in the first place. Now, <clears throat> as for as for Luis himself, decent player, I think. Like, like I say, if if he's like the El Nenny replace, because we know we're going to have to... The, the next phase of this, I wouldn't call it a build anymore, but of this team next summer, definitely midfielder, that's going to be the big purchase. This summer it was the striker. Next summer we know it's going to be midfielder, whether that's long-term, because Party and Jack are both 29, I believe. So at some point there has to be contingency there. Now, if Louise doesn't stop us from doing whatever big midfield signing we want to do next summer and he's the El Nenny kind of replacement fine if he's the party replacement I don't think that's quite good enough um I think Louise is a Douglas Louise is a good player I think he's a really good player and probably an upgrade on El Nenny but not an upgrade on party so I you know I I I think he probably will be, particularly at the kind of price we're probably looking at. I mean, we paid ten million for El Nenny, but that was six years ago. Yeah. So, like, you know, given transfer inflation in that time, you're probably looking at like a similar price if this happens in I don't know the twenty-five million region. Um, as insane as that sounds, <laughs> yeah. But but if it, if it stops us doing that 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 bigger piece next summer, then then I'd have concerns about it. But like I say, I, I kind of don't understand why we didn't just do this anyway, um, rather than extending David Louis, uh, extending David, extending El Nenny, um, why we didn't just part our ways with him and, and do this anyway. Yeah, speaking of David Luiz, like if we do sign Douglas Luiz, or even if this rumor goes on all day and and we do other podcasts about it, I'm putting the over-under on seven times. I call him David Luiz by accident. Um, Douglas Luiz, David Luiz, I mean, come on. You can you can only yeah. expect so much of me. Um, and I, David Luiz has actually got quite a nasty illness at the moment, actually. So, you know, yeah. all the best to him. All the best to him. Um, I mean, you're looking at a guy who's not yet 25, who in the last three seasons has started around 30 games a season, 2,700 minutes in the Premier League at, you know, 22, 23, 24, 21, 22, 23. So, you know, he ticks the sort of basic box of experience. 
I think I think he is in the can do a job category more than even El Nenny. Like I I think he's he's got a little more to his game than that. and I take your point about resigning El Nenny because we will get into talking about Sambi and the question of if there's something there and there probably is something there and we bought them bought him for there to be something there. Uh midfield is sort of a platoon of players, right? It's it's not just a position you solve for. And I, I think what's neat about Douglas Louise is you could buy him to be someone that if you've got to put him out there, I think you'd feel okay about that. And maybe he surprises you and gets even better. He's just coming into his prime and you know, maybe stepping up to a bigger team. He has some qualities I like. And if he doesn't step up, he's a level I'd be happy to have in the squad at the age he's at. Um, and since he's in the last year of his deal, we're not going to overpay to get that. So we, it, it's fine, you know, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's fine. Yeah, It's impossible to have any really strong opinion in either direction because to your point, the likelihood that Douglas Louise becomes the missing piece, I think that's unlikely. The likelihood that Douglas Louise is an important piece that can help us overcome absences, overcome fixture congestion, and play at a high enough level for us. I, I think that is m- more possible. So it is interesting to me because I think p- on pure talent, I still think Tillemans is a better player, but a different player. And it's clear to me, at least, I think Douglas Louise a little more six than eight and Tillemans a little more eight than six. And maybe we've just slightly shifted based on Shaq's brilliant play and some of the players we have in the squad, where we think the priorities are injury-wise, age-wise, looking down the pike. So, I mean, if that's the only deal that happens, would you regard the window as having been satisfactory or do you think a failure to get that one more forward would leave you saying there was business that needed to be done still? So I'd say more than satisfactory. Um, that doesn't mean perfect because, yeah, and clearly we wanted that piece. We let Pepe go to kind of make room for it. So, yeah, it's it, it's not perfect, um, but still more than satisfactory. Like, we've really improved the starting eleven, um, basically, and we've brought in, you know, great squad resilience. We've moved players like Cedric further away from the starting lineup. Tavares, a player I like, but obviously Zinchenko's better than Tavares. So who have we but we've had two left backs playing this season. There's Zinchenko and Tierney. Big improvement. Saliba, centre back, big improvement. Mm-hmm. Gabriel Jesus up front, transformative. Um so you know you can't be unhappy um with all of that. And if you'd have given me that at the beginning of the window, um I I'd have taken it. Um, and even Douglas Louise, <clears throat> I might have said, "Yeah, okay, fine. He's good. He can, he can, he can be in that midfield carousel. That's absolutely fine." You, you're right. Not getting the wide player. That's that's you know the one that got away. But I do think there is potential contingency there in that it's not. It doesn't have to be a gap. It might be a slight quality and experience gap, but I think Fabio Vieira is going to be. It's going to be really, really uh, interesting to me to see where he plays most of his football this season because mm-hmm. um, it, it seems to me like he's going to be a bit of a plug-in player. You know, the backup to Saka, potentially backup to Erdegaard, potentially backup to Xhaka as well, and we can hopefully keep him nice and involved. But he might have to be more of that Saka kind of backup. And we saw in that under-21s game 
not last week, week before, where yeah. Arteta insisted he play on the right, and that's clearly a contingency. He's played Martinelli or moved Martinelli over to the right. He's clearly been thinking about this. Reese Nelson's still there. Marquinhos is there as well. So there are players, don't get me wrong, I'd have loved someone new, shiny, maybe more ready than Marquinhos, maybe better than Reese Nelson, but those players are there, and particularly for the Europa League and the Carabao Cup and stuff like that, those guys are there, and, and maybe it's something we just have to revisit in January. So that that's the only part of the window that that that's the only thing that stopped it being a perfect window, like a full house. But I can't remember many transfer windows where anyone gets, you know, it's it's like Christmas, right? You never get everything you want. <laughs> I mean, it, it's interesting too because I've been, I think, a little bit out of step with some people or a lot of people on this window in that I did, I never felt wide forward was the priority to the extent that others did. And I really felt we needed another midfielder. I I think if we don't do the midfield signing, if we can't get one over the line, then I will think that we've left ourselves in a really shaky position because we have the promising Sambi Lakanga. I think the much less valuable El Nenny than some people would. I I think that really changes the, the way we play. Um, an aging Shaka who seems to be an Iron Man but is suddenly extremely important to us. Um, and behind that, a Vieira that we've never really seen play, a Smith Rowe that he doesn't really play in those positions. I mean, it, there's not a lot there. Um, so I, I think that signing has to happen and I think we can overcome forwards uh, not having a forward signing. Because one thing people seem to forget about, why do you start a project with early prime, pre-prime, or even younger players? What is the one thing that you could get from that project? Organic improvement. And you say, oh, but, you know, organic improvement, what does that even mean? Well, does Martinelli look organically improved this season? Does to me. Does Martin Odegaard look organically improved this season? He does to me, right? Sammy Lukonga's gotten bigger. It's only one performance. But there's, you know, is there improvement there? And as you go through the squad and you look at these players, Enketia. yeah, I mean, Enketia, absolutely good shout. William Saliba, who, to be fair, maybe he was just always good. Um, ben White looks improved to me. So all of these players should be theoretically growing into the period where they will be their best self, and they're not quite there yet. And so that that organic improvement is, I'm going to hit you with a like assigning. It is though, in the sense that it might change how you feel about your quality in your squad. But the one area where I don't think we necessarily can fall back on that is in midfield. And so I think we, we need to get something done there. And it looks like we might, um, it'll be, it'll be interesting because if we don't sign Telemans, he's definitely going into the, uh, the pantheon of, of players that we were very closely, nearly done signing on his way linked with kind of players. I, I We've had a few good ones. Solomon Kalu comes to mind. Um, of course, it would have to stretch out a couple other windows for that to be the case. But yeah, so comfortable to move on from deadline day there. We'll see what happens. We'll have content around that and we can get to the actual football because it deserves it. Okay. Uh, so let's, let's start with the lineup for the Villa game. And look, the news that El Nenny has a long-term injury and that Thomas Party has an injury that may not be long-term but is in an area of his body that seems to be a problem is a worry. It's a worry, and and it's a worry because at that point, people are starting to say, I guess you move Ben White there, or you move Shaka there, or Zinchenko can play there. I said this on a, a Patreon pod earlier this week. I really believe that you bought Sambi Lakanga to be the Thomas Party heir apparent. 
Maybe you think he can do it. Maybe you think he can't. But that's what you bought him to be. And if you won't give him a start when every other natural option is unavailable, then that guy has no future at Arsenal. And I was really hoping he would get his start, and he did. And we'll get into how he performed. But just in terms of that decision, Tim, because I think that's the decision around which all this pivots. You can keep Shaka in his place. You can keep Ben White in his place. You're not shifting all these other things around that work so well. And Samby slots in. Um, I-, I loved it. How did you feel about the decision to start Samby there and generally, you know, Samby getting the chance that he deserves in the position he was probably bought for? Yeah, I, I was listening to um, Lewis and Andrew actually on the uh, on the Ask Blog uh, kind of Patreon match preview, and, and they said something really similar as well. That basically, if you don't start Sambi now, you probably lose him forever. Yeah. Um, at this point, that I, I wasn't surprised. The only thing I was surprised about is I did suspect that Xhaka would go to that deeper position and Sambi would play in the left eight. Now I'm I'm kind of glad it worked out the other way for the reasons you highlight, and I hope that's something Arteta's learned that basically, like systemically, change as little as possible um, if you can, um, rather than shifting people around. And and actually, I, I I'd have been really interested to see what would have happened if Zin- Zinchenko had been fit. Whether yeah. he might have started in that position um, <clears throat> ahead of Sambi, but have, I'm I'm glad he did it because, yeah. Otherwise, I think the players are right off. I and and I think the way it was played as well was was quite um, was relatively deft as well because he was in the party role. But the thing that Arteta probably learned from that Brighton game back in April, he didn't leave Sambi on an island. So Xhaka was a a fair bit closer to him. So Xhaka was still doing left eight stuff, but he wasn't running into the box quite as much. Like he, he, he kind of helped him through that game and that's absolutely right. That's absolutely what was needed. It also meant that Tierney didn't come inside um, as much. There wasn't as much swapping as position there. Um, And you look at Tierney's touch map, far fewer touches um, kind of around the centre circle compared to Saturday. So, and clearly that was a right. We're gonna we're just gonna simplify this a little bit because we don't have the pieces we need to do the the more kind of complicated rotations. We need to look after Sambi. We can't leave him on his own. Um, so we're gonna just have to simplify things a little bit. And I think uh, I, and I think Jacker did that really really well as well. So I, I I think I think he got it right basically in terms of he played Sambi, he showed him that trust um, and, you know, I think probably keeps the player on board as it well, particularly, you know, we've got a Europa League game next Thursday. And even if Sambi, because I was thinking like, oh God, like what, what do we do on Sunday now? Because I think Sambi played well in this game, but obviously it's a very, very different game to the one we're going to play on Sunday. Yeah. And I wouldn't mind betting Zinchenko is patched up um, for mm. that one. But we've got a Europa League game next Thursday and Sambi can play in that. So immediately, if he's disappointed, if, if my projection is accurate and he's left out the starting lineup at Old Trafford, he immediately gets a game. And then there's another Europa League game next week. So you keep him in touch with playing football at least. So it's not like, not like it was for him at the end of last season where he played one game, didn't perform didn't see him again like I think that that was probably quite demoralizing for him so I think I think it was important to play him today even if you don't play him on Sunday keep him in touch um, with that and also just show that you can trust him and look ultimately it was Villa Villa are dreadful at the moment (laughs) Um, like possibly one of the 
best teams we could have been playing in this yeah. fixture because they're they're I'd say on current form, you know, um, I mean even Bournemouth got a draw in midweek like their relegation form um, at the moment and I think they're really kind of circling the drain with their manager so th- this was a good game and if if, if he wasn't going to start this game it, w- it was never going to happen for him so I'm, I'm glad he did and I'm glad he played well and and it's sort of weird in a way because he played well at the start of the season last season and you know yep. the beginning of his Arsenal career I'm not saying he was amazing but I thought he was really good okay he had a bit of a mare in a 10 or 15 minute period at Anfield. Like you're not alone, buddy. You know, that's going to happen. The to manager, <laughs> yeah. the manager yeah. talks about how he had one quite a lot. That's um, a great know, point. Nothing. That's a really good point. Right. And, and, and he turned out. Okay. So then he comes back and plays not great. Admittedly during our little three match losing run that kind of cost us our season at the tail end of the season, but he had essentially been, you know, frozen out. I don't mean that with any connotation. You just hadn't been playing for so long that you can understand why it might have been hard to get dropped back into that situation, a situation where we're missing a lot of other complementary pieces. Look what happens now when you put him into a firing team, a fully clicking team with a system that doesn't ask that position to be the all-singing, all-dancing magician who does everything. He completes 50 of 54 passes, about half of them going forward. He had some big switches up to Tierney and Martinelli that were really nice. He looked ready. I will say the first like 10 minutes or so I was worried because he had a little of those like loose touches, nervy moment. You know, you could see that he was he was nervous to start that game, especially when he was in the defensive third. He, how much time do I have? I got to get rid of it. He grew into the game and he looked really, really good. The same thing I think actually happened against Brighton last season. The game we lost, um, in well, I think we may have lost both of them, but he, he, um, he, Grew into the game once he really realized, hey, I'm good enough for this. I can, I, I can handle this pressure. So, I was really impressed with his performance. But I think the the next direction I want to go is just the performance generally. And it's interesting because the fact that this scoreline is two one means that people who didn't watch it, or people who were checking in and out, or you know, people who just glance at the scoreline, won't understand what this game was about. And this game was about one word, dominance. Total, complete, utter, unencumbered dominance. Arsenal destroyed Aston Villa. And unfortunately, in football, the hardest thing in the world to do is put the ball in the back of the net, unless you have Erling Holland, obviously. And because of that, football can always hurt you. I remember a Champions League game I don't. It was. I think it was a, a, a Russian side, maybe Dinamo Moscow or Locomotive Moscow, one of those. Seska. Seska Moscow, the one I didn't name. And I've never seen Arsenal dominate a team so thoroughly, and we didn't win. And, like, it was the most insane result I've ever seen. That That's just one of those things that happens, but it didn't happen. And this is the point. When you produce, and I want to read it because I think I want to get it exactly right, 3.23 expected goals to 0.34 expected goals. It's not lucky when you come back and win. It's you thoroughly deserve to win, and the order of the goals just made it feel like you had to gut it out. But the point of dominance is that ultimately dominance is telling. Look at what City did to Palace, right? City were losing 2-0 to Palace. And then, oh, they they got out of jail. They won 4-2. They didn't get out of jail. Their XG in that game was similar to ours against Villa. It's the point that when you dominate, 
you you ultimately will more commonly get the result you deserve. And Tim, I, I said this on the instant reaction. What we did to Villa is kind of like what City does. We suffocated the crap out of them. They couldn't get the ball. Everything had to go long. We were in their d- defensive third constantly, peppered them with shots, 22, I think. And ultimately, they did the, the, the walls caved in on them. And the player that I think we have to start with, once again, is the player who has gone from good to pretty good to outrageous to sadly potentially injured, but that's another story. And that's Martin Odegaard. And I, I, I wonder what you think of this guy now because the level he's hit in these last two games is a level I don't think we've seen him hit at Arsenal full stop, period. He, he was incredible in this game. And it's not just the sexy, fun stuff. It's the defensive pressure. It's regaining the ball, keeping the ball, and then ultimately doing some nasty stuff with it to, to play people in. Yeah, absolutely. And and to let viewers in, listeners, viewers in behind the yeah, curtain, yeah, well, well, well vamped, Elliot. Um, my door mm-hmm. went. <laughs> I left Elliot to talk for a well, few seconds. On the instant reaction, I think I did seven and a half minutes of an intro. So, you know, <laughs> old hat. Um, but, but yeah, I'm completely with you. And, and I think what's quite interesting about Odegaard as well is we've seen this a couple of times where perhaps in the first couple of games, I think he was broadly fine, but, you know, he wasn't at his absolute height. And we saw that last season where, you know, he he builds up to a bit of a crescendo and then it's bang. You just get, you get like, oh, he was a bit average today, a little bit better, a little bit better, bang, like stratosphere. And that's what we're seeing at the moment. And again... Arteta spoke um, when he signed Gabriel Jesus about like uh, what what he could do for Erdegaard, but he was talking like creatively in terms of being there for that pass yeah. and everything like that. But I think you're right. What he's also getting from Gabriel Jesus is, wow, there's two of us pressing like maniacs now. The press was crazy, wasn't it? Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Particularly in that first half. And it was... It was um, and and he's so good at it and he's always been so good at it and i and i think now we've got a real we've got like a proper pincer in that press with Erdegaard kind of pressing from the the yep. right half space jesus from the left there's like a and martinelli coming in and and all of that like it's a proper pincer movement now um and and the way as well there there was um again i i a thread i retweeted this morning from uh, aaron catterson reed I, I i really recommend to people but he was talking about how it wasn't just about like winning the ball back although we did that the arsenal had a plan to basically get villa to go to their full backs and then ben uh, to their left back in particular digne and have Ben White basically sitting on him because then what Digne kept doing was just smashing the ball down the line. Yep. And I've seldom seen a centre half so comfortable with that tactic as William Saliba. Yeah. You know, and and that's that's also what a press is about. It's about getting it's about setting traps and getting the opposition to do what you want them to do. So press them wide. Digne, he's a good overlapping fullback, but he's not brilliant on the ball. Just kept clipping it up the line, and we just kept getting it back. So yep. even when they played past the initial Jesus Odegaard press, all they were doing was going to their fullback, fullback up the line. Thank you very much. We'll take that back. So that that's really what a press is about. A press is is not just about can I get the ball here. It's about asserting dominance and getting the opposition to give you the ball back. And that's just kept happening again and again. And then when you've got players like, and this is where Sambi's really 
really good as well. He's really good at putting the squeeze on, you know, squeezing up against um, players, particularly when, you know, teams trying to pass out under pressure. And like Sambi's quite good at like getting up the backside of the guy who's facing it, who's getting the ball facing his own goal. And Arsenal have got a few players who can do that now, including their centre halves. So it was, it was, you know, just absolutely relentless. It was a lesson in how to not just dominate possession, but dominate territory and make it yours. Because basically in that first half, Villa just couldn't get the ball. Like they, they booted the ball into our half a yeah. few times I don't remember them really possessing it and all that was happening was it was just coming straight back and and Erdegaard was a massive massive part of that as well as all of the other stuff we know he can do when he's when he's on song those kind of those quick touches and everything and what I really like is he just I, I'm conscious of how often I compare players to Thomas Rosicki I don't know why Rosicki's become this like real template <laughs> kind of player but you know he just speeds the game up like he yeah. just always seems to be there he just always seems to be the passing option for whoever has the ball um you know again particularly over on the right but like more than that as well just the areas he pops up in he's just super intelligent player and and th- this you know if we're talking about like the striker being like a defining signing for you know the Arteta projects, and there have been a few of those. I think Ben White's one of them, Party's one of them, but really Erdegaard looks like to me at the moment, like in terms of our transfers, like the poster boy for this Arteta team, um, and he's, yeah. he's he was superb again. And and you can see like it's interesting because I think when you give a player the armband, it's interesting to see how they react to that responsibility. And I think it says a lot about his character that at such a young age, getting the armband, what does it do for him as a player? It he just takes on more responsibility and and can handle it and, and is growing as a player. He's he's a real talent, and I do think it's it's worth remembering. Like at 16 years old, he got signed by Real Madrid, right? Like or or something like that. I, th- I think it was 16. Sometimes these players who are spotted super super young don't don't find the path to their their full capability to be easy because they wind up at clubs where they don't necessarily have the role or you know they they struggle with some of the expectation but they get lost we, on loan yeah yeah i mean that that can happen right but for him it, it whatever the path was he is achieving superstardom at least the level he's played the last two games it takes more than two games to be a superstar but that's why i really hope he does, he's not injured not just because oh i want him at old trafford but also because I don't want anything to interrupt this ascendancy, right? This ability for him to to level up. And one of the things that's really evident the last two games, and in this game especially, I feel like his rapport with Saka is at its its absolute best again. It's a shame that Saka misses the big chance, the Martinelli pass slid over to the side. And then the other one, I don't know if it's really a chance, the weird goal mouth scramble. It's never really there for him to, to kick it in, but he's there, so people are like, oh, how does he not score? The reason I say it's a shame is I thought he was brilliant. And and he'll be remembered for not scoring. First of all, he creates the winner. Now, I think Martinelli still has work to do with that finish, as, as Mikel points out, but he creates it. And the number of times, Tim, 
you're not always going to get the ball up the pitch by passing around everybody perfectly. The number of times he used strength and guile to turn a man in midfield and start carrying the ball up into the attacking third, dragging defenders away, creating you know mismatches and numerical advantages, it, it was constantly happening. And he has this weird thing where it looks like maybe he's going down, but he, he kind of uses his low center of gravity to turn and keep stay on the ball. He was getting kicked to pieces. Once again, a referee, I, I think, letting a game get right on the edge of of losing control. I, I thought the referee did a poor job with that. And to be fair, I mean, you know, you're allowed to body slam in the box occasionally. We all know that, I guess, apparently. Um, but but can we just quickly talk Saka? Because I think there's a narrative forming about Saka needing to lift his level because of the goal-scoring situation. But I do think in this case, he did lift his level. I think this was a good Saka game. And and the one big miss is probably the thing that's going to keep people from really keying on it, you know? Yeah, I think this was his best performance of the season. And I, agree. And I say that as someone who, who thinks he's been playing well this season. I think he's been asked to hold the width of the pitch quite a lot. So he hasn't really been, um, you know, I think by instruction, not really picking up those spaces to score goals. Um, I think you're right. I think he looked more dangerous in, in this game in that respect. I think um, you know there are assists and there are assists, and this this was a really good assist for Martinelli. It's, it's a wonderful pick out in a white hot moment in a very crowded penalty area. Um, I was you know I was kind of right behind him, and I I wasn't looking. I, I, look, I'm not saying it's like um, it was go go gadget eyes or anything to see Martinelli on the back post, but in that moment I didn't really see that. I was like shoot, shoot, curl it towards, you know, like, but he had the presence of mind to pick his head up and like top players do that. And yeah, to your point, I think we've become inured to how good he is at spinning away from players with his back to goal Mm -hmm. and getting facing goal and running at players. Honestly, I think he's the best in the division at it. I really, really do. Uh, Just the way he is able to because the thing is what again yeah to your point we've got a lot of nice passes we've got some in the front line we've got some great off ball runners some great pressers and all of that but you need a dribbler you have to have one you have to have one guy who can carry the ball and he's so so good at it and the thing is because he's so good at spinning players it's really easy to give him the ball because you don't have there are a lot of players you're like oh we have to give him the ball facing goal or facing a certain position or Look, I'm sure we'll talk about how excellent he was in a minute. I, I certainly want to in terms of Xhaka. But look, you kind of when you when you're playing Xhaka, you're like, look, let's let's try and give him the ball when he's not facing his own goal. Let's try. You don't have to do that with Saka. You just all right. He's got two men on his back. He's got his back to goal. Fine. He'll spin them. He'll get away, and he'll either get a free kick or he'll just get away. Yeah, uh, and it's as simple as that. Like he very rarely gets tackled in that that situation, and the way he leans his shoulder in, the way he's able to hold people off, like just just absolutely exceptional. I I think he's been really good all season in a very understated way. I thought he was good in a very stated way here, and even yeah. the miss he has, like I I think I think as you know fans, pundits, analysts, the rest of it, I think we're exceptionally harsh about missed chances sometimes. I think we really, it reminds me actually a little bit of the way sometimes we, we maybe look at refereeing decisions in terms yeah. of, although yeah. I agree with you, I think the referee managed this game. Uh, that's the word I'd use. I think he managed the game very poorly mm-hmm. and that's not about any one decision. But anyway, like 
we, we tend to be unsympathetic about misses and we never put ourselves in the position of the guy, how he's receiving the ball, the speed of the ball. Like that ball was walloped at Saka. That came at him at speed. Weaker foot like, outside the post, right? It's not inside the frame of the goal. Yeah. It's outside. So he's got he's to steer it back. He can't just exactly. like, touch it. It's forward. one of those where I can't really see what else he can do other than just get contact on it and get on the end of it. And there's so much. Like in the end, ultimately, it's actually not a great cross because it's got too much on it and it makes that likely. Whereas you look the other way around when Saka puts the cross into Martinelli in the second half, that's how you do it. You, you don't have to take the guy's head off yeah. um, when you hit a cross in. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm not like slagging Martinelli off for that. It's just pro- probably just, look, what we saw, right, in those two incidents is that Saka's a better technician than Martinelli, but Martinelli's a better finisher than Saka probably. Uh, and, yeah. And I those two fair. things just went, in in the kind of in the other direction on that occasion, yeah, and and like Saka is a dominant foot player. We've seen it against was it Fulham where he was in on his right, yeah, and he cuts it back and tries to to beat Leno with his left. Like he he does want to shoot with his left, which by the way everybody wants to shoot with their strong foot, but but Saka in particular does. And I think a right foot finish outside the frame of the goal with the ball coming at you at that speed, like it, it, it's not quite so straightforward. But my point, whether you think that's a bad miss or you don't. And don't have to do a whole podcast on that. The game is a good one, and I, I think that 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 what he's contributing, the value of it is is certainly there to see. And it was in this game. Um, he'll if he puts himself in those positions, he'll he'll get that goal. You know what I mean? If that yeah. happens another three times, he'll score. He'll be fine. the The funny thing is, you could do a whole podcast on players that were brilliant in this game, and and forget to talk about Gabriel Jesus. And you could also say he was the best player of the game. Like it, it is that we're, we were playing that well in this game that there are a lot of performances that stand out. The thing that strikes me about Jesus, just set aside his quality for a minute. He makes life miserable for the opposition. And I think about center backs who rocked up to play Arsenal last season with Lacazette out there and thinking about their game, be like, you know what? Just don't let him play a ball in behind. He, he's not going to threaten you in behind. He, you know, he's not going to go into the physical battles with you you're you're going to have an easy day if you just keep track of the runners. And then you compare that with like Jesus, who's going to nick it off your toe and shoulder barge you off it no matter how big you are. Tyrone Mings lost a duel to Jesus when Jesus was second best to the ball and Jesus doesn't let it go, chases it down, shoulder into Mings, stretches a leg, pulls it away and 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 we get a good attacking opportunity from it. And like that's him to a T. He does that all game long and he never stops. And I think it's why he winds up getting subbed because he probably, at the, at the pace and intensity of the way he's playing, there's probably only about 75 minutes of that in anybody. But, I mean, he gets the goal that there's... I hate it because it, the goal isn't to slag off Lacazette. The goal is to praise Jesus. But what I mean is, following that up, like there's a lot of strikers that don't follow that up, that don't score that goal. That is a... I need to be there because I want to score goals. I want to be relentless. That is a goal of relentlessness. He also has some quality where, you know, he has the one where he fires it at, at um, Emmy Martinez and, and doesn't quite, you know, can't quite get it past him. Good stinging shot. Martinez, ironically, had a great game against us, except for the two goals we score where he's going to be disappointed himself. But that relentlessness, Tim, I, I think that's the piece that impresses me because the quality of the player is there. We see it. We see his touches. But, 
He wins so many balls that he is second best for through relentlessness. And, and I think that that quality cannot be overstated in terms of its importance to the way we're playing. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, to your point um, that, uh, that you've made several times this season, that, that Jesus goal, exactly the type of goal you've been saying you see us scoring scoring a lot of this season. Just second guys, ball. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep, second ball, following in, whatever. So, yep, Erdegaard versus Bournemouth, we saw that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've seen that in several games now. We've seen Martinelli score that goal. So, uh, yeah, that, that's and, – and it's – but – you know, it is very much the rising tide lifting all boats um, type scenario because I, I think the thing is um, about about Gabriel Jesus as well is like you say that really to summarise a striker, you think if I'm a defender playing him today, what do I do? What's my game plan? And um, and and actually, I, <laughs> this is this is stolen insight from listening to someone talk about Holland because, uh, <laughs> mm. like, they were basically, basically I just heard someone saying with Holland, usually like a guy that big is not very fast. So if you're a defender, you go, okay, right, we'll just like we'll 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 push Give up him an extra yard of space. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, push up. yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. And but then usually like a guy that fast isn't that big. So right, usually right. if you get like a fast nippy strike, you go, all right, like let's just defend the penalty area. And if crosses come in, we'll win them. It's like, nope. If crosses come in, he's winning them. And if you push up, he's running he's in behind past, you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this isn't about Erling Haaland. This is about um, uh, yeah, his uh, his superior um, Gabriel Jesus. So. Like what? Like what do you do if you're a def- if you're a defender? And and it, the thing is as well, it because he doesn't stay in one place. Like if if I'm Tyrone Mings coming into that game last night, like what the hell? Like I could watch all the videos I want of Gabriel Jesus and Arsenal's movement and all of that. Like basically, what he does is he makes sure that no one is his guy. You know, or sorry, he is no one's guy in that defense. It's not like right. He likes the right. He likes to like go over to the right or sometimes it like even Henri, it was like, go, I mean, he was just unstoppable. So it didn't really matter, mm-hmm. but it's like, well, we know he's going to veer left into that half space. Um, we won't be able to stop him when he gets there, but we know that that's what he's going to do. Like you can't telegraph what Jesus is going to do because he's everywhere. He's on the right. He's on the left. He's in the half space in the center. Sometimes he puts the cross in. Sometimes he's on the end of it. Um, you know, the, like this goal he scores, um, I forget who has the initial shot that, that Martinet, was it Xhaka? Um, um, I can't remember. Yeah, it's gosh, deflected yeah. and Martinez spills it and yeah. and he puts it in. But I've seen Jesus put that ball in um, a few times. You know, I, I think he put it in for Odegaard at, at Bournemouth. No, no, that was Martinelli, wasn't it, who shot? Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah. like the, the point is, it's, <laughs> we'll <get> it's, <laughs> it's a carousel, right? They rotate and they rotate positions and... And, you know, the wide players, they might move in one lane. Uh, they might be wide. They might be in the half space. Jesus is everywhere. And sometimes he's out on the touchline, you know, and picking up the ball. Sometimes he's the widest in that, like, fifth lane. And and so because he's everywhere, he's no one's responsibility. So you're, what you have to commit to is essentially zonal marking him. Mm-hmm. And that that that's kind of difficult because... You know, as as a defender, probably as a defender, you want to come into a game with a defined idea of who you're picking up and what you need to do to stop them. But if if the guy's just moving everywhere, that's very difficult. But also, is I've made that sound on Jesus's part easier than it is because it just sounds like a feat of energy, and it is. 
but it's knowing where to be and when to be there as well, knowing when to come into the half space, when to stay in the centre, when to come short, when to go out wide and let Martinelli or whoever tuck inside you. Like the the intelligence to be able to do that is that that's what makes it special. Otherwise, like if it was just a feat of energy, like El Nenny would do it because he's like one of the most energetic players there is. So it's it's the intelligence of knowing when and letting your teammates move off you and and yeah he's it it's more I know we've said this before it's more than just we've got a number nine now it's just we've got a number nine who lifts the other players around him as well mm-hmm. and you know I, I look I, I it, not an amazing prediction on my part but I did write something like a couple of days before the season started saying I thought you'll see a hell of a lot more from Martinelli this year. I really saw something in that potential relationship, and I think, boy, are we seeing it. He's got three goals and three assists in five games. It's not quite Erling Holland, but he's averaging about one XG plus XA per 90. 0.92. He, he is averaging a goal contribution per game. When you sign a new striker, that is exactly what you hope. Can he be worth an extra goal a game? And right now... He is. And by the way, if you want to say, well, look at the teams we played. Whatever you think of that argument. You know what great teams do? You know what title-winning teams do? They stomp the weak teams. That's what they do. They put their foot on their throat, and they stomp them, and they rack up numbers. And right now, we are right up there as one of the best in XG and one of the best in XG allowed. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about our defense being so good, we have one of the meanest defenses in the league. Second best on XG allowed behind only City, second best on goals allowed, ironically, behind only Brighton. What a job Graham Potter's doing there. But it's not because our defending is great. Our defending is great. We're just not having to do much of it. This is the football we want to be playing in your half, in your attacking third. You want to score goals against us? You need to be down the pitch, buddy, and we're not going to let you down there. We're going to press you and keep you here. We're going to keep the ball. We're going to get 65, 70% possession. We're going to outshoot you 22 to 4. We're going to out XG you. And if you somehow steal something from us with that, then so be it. The football gods were against us that day. But what we're not going to do is give you even a moment to think you are in this game by letting you sit in our defensive third and attack us. And that's why our defense is good. Not just because we're defending well, but because we don't have to. And I think that is... A critical component, yeah? Yeah, definitely. And uh, something I was going to say earlier, actually, and, and forgot is that when we're talking about like just the amount of attacking we're doing, the amount of shots and things like that, that's why I think we're able to, we've been able to respond quickly to goal concessions, um, which has been a theme so far this season, that every time we concede a goal, we seem to score straight away afterwards. And I, I, I don't, but the thing is, I don't interpret that as us ratcheting the temperature up. I just think that when you're already in that mindset, you stay in that mindset. What becomes difficult, and and I think all players and managers will say this, once you retreat or you start to retreat, if you concede then, it's very difficult to get out of the retreat mindset. It's true. Um, and, and actually, to be fair, we did see the Rob Holdings up on yeah. this occasion. But but each time we've done it, I, I don't detect that it's been because we've dropped off and then come back again. It's just because we've kept doing the things we're doing. And I think it's more that the opponents, like 
maybe psychologically have relaxed for they take a, a breath. minute because they've scored. Yeah, they've, they, they take, take a, we're a beat. We're so intense and they take a breath because they've just scored and our intensity overwhelms them in that moment when they take that breath. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and again, to your point about like, you know, building up points and racking up points against these teams, just think about how you feel about Old Trafford on Sunday. If we draw that game, I am fine. I'm absolutely fine if we draw that game because... Depends, who, <laughs> Look, depends who's available, right? If, if Zinchenko's out there and Odegaard is out there and I want to, I want to go bury them. But yeah, I ob- obviously everyone wants that. But like, I, I would be fu- if we if we draw that game on Sunday, unless I don't know, unless we're like three 0 up with ten minutes to go or <laughs> <Fair> something. <laughs> like, if if we come out of that game with like a hard fought draw, even a draw where maybe we should have won or whatever, like I'm I'm not going to be crapping myself because we've beaten these teams that we should beat it's to this point. point. Yeah, and, yeah. 16 points from 18 w- would be a, a really, really strong return. Yeah, well said. I, I think it's it's the point that when you stomp the the bottom teams, you know, the weaker teams, the other thing it means is you don't suddenly have to go win away to City and Liverpool. You know, when you, when you put yourself in a position where you've dropped dumb points, suddenly you find yourself saying, we got to go get something at Anfield. Well, when you win all the, you know, beat all the weaker teams, you give yourself a margin for error. I my only thing about going to Old Trafford, and we'll get to this a little bit more, is it depends what team we're able to put out there in terms of what what I would like to see us be able to go do. So there's a lot, there's a lot, lot, lot more to get to. And the funny thing is, one of the things I had on the sheet to talk about here is just the incredible atmosphere at the Emirates. But we talk about it every episode, and we have so much to get to that I don't think we need to say it. Suffice it to say, Tim, it's just a really special time to be at the Emirates. It's loud, and it's got to be fun. Yep. Yeah, it really is. And, and, and it's, yeah, it's become like an, uh, I know I use this analogy all the time. It's become an economies of scale effect. Now everyone's saying it, everyone's recognizing it. And so everyone brings a little bit more because they know it's special. I don't think it's any coincidence that we're recovering, losing or recovering from goals we concede at home so quickly because the crowd's reaction to those concessions has been support rather than anxiety. Um, and, and that, that may be just a minor little thing, but I think it helps the players not have that anxiety creep in. Um, but anxiety will creep in when your European football comes back. And probably not because we're in the Europa League and it's probably pretty easy. But Champions League soccer is back, streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Nine months of heart-stopping, hold-your-breath exhilaration starts September 6th with the biggest stars, top teams, and craziest fan bases across Europe. Watch every match from the group stage through the knockout rounds as Benzema and Real Madrid defend their title against Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea, PSG, Barcelona, and more in soccer's biggest club competition. So don't miss a single sweat-soaked second of regulation time, stoppage time, and extra time. And stream every match of the UEFA Champions League live starting September 6th exclusively on Paramount Plus and the Europa League. Because that's the one thing. It's an Arsenal podcast. Watch the Europa League. Watch the best team in world football dominate the Europa League on Paramount+. Plus. And there's supposed to be a new script for Manscaped today. But I don't see it, which means I get to make it up. It probably says something like, I don't know, it probably says something like, don't, it, it's fall and the leaves are falling. So make sure that the hair is falling to the ground as you shave it from your privates. I don't, I don't know. They're the masters at this. I'm not. What I know is they're the masters of making the best purpose-built trimmer on the planet for your body. Body grooming. It's what we're about. If I want anybody to say, what, what is the Arsenal Vision podcast about? Most importantly, a beautifully shaved set of privates. That's that's really what it's all about. So what is the Lawnmower 4.0? It is the longest battery life uh, trimmer that I've ever used. It's wet, dry. It works in the shower. Go in your shower. Go to shave yourself. Look down and look at what you've been shaving with. I mean, 
It's pretty dicey. It's pretty dicey. And if you haven't been using anything at all, hey, it was my anniversary yesterday. You know what makes an anniversary special? I, I don't even need to say it. You know, you know where I'm going. And if I say it, it'll only, only make me feel gross. But the Lawnmower 4.0 is my go-to uh, wet, dry, long battery life. It's got an LED light so you can see what you're doing. It's got skin-safe technology and ceramic blades designed to cut on looser skin. So a little uh, less nicking, right? Which is pretty important in that area. And of course, it has the induction charger. So you can just set it in the cradle button lock if you're traveling with it. You can get the Performance Package 4.0, which comes with the Shed Travel Bag, the toners, the tonics, the... Um, oh yeah, the, the weed whacker, the ear hair and nose hair trimmer, which I have aged into the range of human beings that need to use that kind of product. And if you have, then join me, my friends. This is a wonderful product. You can get 20% off and free worldwide shipping when you use promo code ArsenalVision at manscaped.com. Go to manscaped.com, save 20% and free worldwide shipping. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Go, do it now. Tim, is that enough of that? Indeed. The indeed part feels a little weird when there's no indeed, but you get the idea. Okay, we got a lot more praising to do, and and we we you know we're already o- almost hitting the hour mark. So let's get a couple quick hits on praise. I feel bad doing only a quick hit on Gabriel Martinelli, but I thought Gabriel Jesus would be great, and he's been great. Sack has been great. The goals will come. Odegaard's gone to a, a level up. The player who I had a lot of faith in, but based on last season, really needed to see something more from him to to sort of. Uh, make me feel like that faith was warranted was Gabriel Martinelli. And boy, have we seen it. If, it. if you're sick of seeing Gabriel Jesus running at you as a defender, then you look over and you're like, hey, there's no relief over here, man, because I got Gabriel Martinelli doing it. The energy he expends and the fact that he's the one staying on the pitch, I think, tells you what the manager thinks about him. Emmy Martinez robs him of an absolute stunner on the volley. I mean, a laser beam to the corner. Very unlucky. Probably could have gotten an assist from from Saki. He's the man who scores the winner, and you see what it meant to him, the relief. I think he's like, there, I got my goal. He wants it so bad. He brings so much to the game. He creates opportunities for his teammates. He has a good feel for when the shot is on for himself versus when it's time to set somebody else up. And the intensity, again, we talked about it with Jesus. It's there with Martinelli. The level he's gone to, Tim, I'm not convinced we're even seeing the best. I I'm I have always thought this player has something in him that maybe is right at the top of the game. And based on early returns, I think we're trending that direction. This was a brilliant performance. It really was, yeah, yeah. And and I think you can see a couple of things, just his own improvement. I think we saw an improvement in his kind of technical fundamentals last season. Um, and actually, surprisingly, what we didn't get last season was quite as much of the end product. Uh, we saw glimpses of it, but I do think that a lot of that was just because teams kind of found out Lacazette. Um, and so, that, you know, initially there was a, there's pressure on you and Saka to score because that that's kind of it in terms of goal scorers. But once like Lacazette's um, kind of legs were cut off in terms of facilitation, that, that was kind of that. This season with that striker there, we're seeing that. Um, I think a lot more. He's also, I think, a beneficiary of what's going on on that left-hand side. That left-hand side looking a lot more kind of um, a lot more fluid now than it did last season. So you know, in the first couple of games where you've got Zinchenko over there now uh, doing lovely stuff, and like I think Martinelli's had more of an opportunity to get off the flank and get into some of those areas. And then the rest is about him, really. It's about, like you say, his shot choice has gotten much better. Um, uh, you know, he's tidied up his touch and things like that. And, you know, Arteta spoke a year or two 
ago about him, you know, introducing gears into his game so that it's not like just a thousand miles an hour all the time, but knowing when to knowing when to take the breath, when to go fifty miles an hour, when to go two hundred miles an hour, kind of thing. And he's and he's really getting that. And and look, that's game time, right? He's been playing, basically been a member of the starting eleven since Abamyang. Um, was was frozen out last December, so he's had a good kind of you know um, eight nine months. Well, I suppose there's the summer in there, but you know he's, he's had a, a really kind of good run in the team. And again, like the the best thing you can say for him is that last season Martinelli and Smith Rowe was a competition. It was a rotation. It's not this season so far. Um, might become that way. I'm sure Smith Rowe will get his chances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But at the moment. There's, there's just no doubt that Martinelli has, has, has got that that position um, for himself, and and it's yeah. it's a fabulous goal as well. Just to just to finish it, that that as much as I I picked up Saka for the delivery, that's not an easy finish. He really has to readjust, and again, in a pressure moment, he doesn't snatch at it. I think we're just seeing all of those things that we knew were there, but perhaps he wasn't bringing together on a regular enough basis, and now we're seeing it on a regular basis, and it's it's tremendous. And he fe- and it's like he feels like our player. You know, because we 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 trusted him, we gambled on him. Barca looked at him, United looked at him. None of them took him. We did, and we've built this player. And and you know, he feels he he feels in that kind of I guess that Fabregas Bellerin uh, kind of um, uh, area of orbit where it's not actually your youth product, but really you've you've done like you've done that last big bit of building the player. Yeah, and, and I mean. He's by far our highest in expected assists with no assists yet this season. So I think he's unlucky there, right? Some some finishing has just de- deprived him of that. He's a really good creator of chances for other players. He's averaging four shots per 90. Now you might say, shots, who cares? It's actually a, a pretty good way of seeing who the best attacking players are. I mean, if you look at the shots per 90 leaders in the Premier League right now and throw out the ones who've only played like a few minutes, it's Holland. It's Ronaldo, it's Kane, it's, it's Jesus, it's Julian Alvarez, James Madison, um, Sam Maximum, Kevin De Bruyne. I mean, that, that you know, there's not a lot of junk in there. Martinelli, just ahead of Jesus, taking four shots. He had five shots in this game, seven the previous game. I, I just think when you can be a guy who's a shot monster like that, but you're also leading the team in expected assists, right? What that says is, you're not taking your shots at the expense of playing for the team. You're not doing what Ronaldo does. You're you're doing both, and it's it's really impressive. And one of the reasons he's able to be so good is because the left side just looks better this season generally. And I got to level with you, Tim. I always thought Shaka was an okay player. No, that's not fair. There were times I thought Shaka wasn't a very okay player. Then there were times where I was like, you know what? He's a solid guy. I just wish he wasn't the first name on the team sheet guy. And then there's what Shaka is becoming. and. There is a second act in this guy's career at Arsenal because right now he is fantastic. You could pick one of five or six men of the match in this game and and I'd I'd say fine. I see it different, but that one's fine. And one of them you could pick is Shaka. And he's doing it in a role that in my mind was not suited for him. I thought, you know, needs the game in front of him. Big long range passing, tight space is not good for him. And here he is proving that completely wrong at the tail end of the prime of his career. He's just great in this game. He has started to get the feel for when to make the run forward, not just drop back to support. He has good rapport with with Martinelli and Jesus. 
Um, he helped Samby through the game. Not that we needed a ton of help in this game because we were just killing him. And for a guy who we don't think of as, as an athlete per se, able to be part of the pressing game, able to regain the ball, shows the right amount of intensity now. There was one time he was going for a 50-50 ball, and I thought he was going to go through the man. He holds up, right, and, and wins the ball and keeps it. He just... He's clicking on all cylinders. And it's interesting, Tim, because he's the kind of player that I think he's a leader of men, but when all the responsibility is on him, maybe he does too much or or tries to do more than fits his game. Right now, he's got so many good players around him that can help out. He can be one of many. And as one of many, he looks brilliant. Yeah, definitely. I, I think maybe a bit of a masterstroke to give Erdegaard the actual armband because I think we can all see with our eyes that Xhaka is... Um, you know, not, not to detract to in that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like Xhaka is also the captain of this mm-hmm. team. Like I think, you know, I think Erdgard absolutely deserves and earned the armband. He's the technical leader of the team. I think he's the manager's brain on the pitch, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Xhaka's probably a more traditional type captain. It, it's just that it's maybe politically tricky to actually give him the armband, albeit, you know, he's second in line. He got it when Erdegaard went off. But I think you're right. I think that just suits him. I think what's um, also interesting about his leadership role is that now he actually is like the oldest, and he was, you know, the oldest player um, we started yesterday. So, like, it's him and Party who are, in terms of age, the senior guys. Xhaka is. He must be um, absent Bellerin, maybe, who's about to go. Um, and in fact, looks like he's actually literally gone um, as of like this minute. He, he might be the longest serving player at Arsenal. Cer- certainly in terms of a fixture in the team, like this is his seventh season in the team. So there, like he has assumed a lot of seniority. And, and it's clear as well that, that the players have always valued his leadership. Like when he was made captain under Emery, um, Lord knows why it took Emery three months to do that, but that little piece of admin. But it, everything we're told is that the players were 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 a big part a uh, big part of that. We're told that when Arteta chose this leadership group of, of three captains, that the players wanted Jacka in there. They've clearly always valued what he's brought in that respect. And I think what we're also seeing is, um, is yeah, just, and, and so I think that's always been there, but maybe you're right. It's a more settled team. It's a happier team. It's probably an easier team to lead now than it was. And it doesn't have like other competing senior figures like Lacazette, like Aubameyang, um, and players like that. And, you know, Ozil's been there during his time. He's played with Sanchez. Like, he's he's the big character in the room now. Because even like Thomas Partey, Thomas Partey's experienced, but I don't get that sense from him that he's like, you know, big man on campus, as it were. No, no. Uh, whereas I do get that from Xhaka. And, but also, I just think tactically, the, the role, again, it's, uh, I don't know, I, I don't think the role was given to Xhaka because of Xhaka. I think the role is one Arteta wanted in the team and Xhaka was the closest to it. But it actually, it makes a lot of sense the more you think about it. It's taken him away from some of those areas where maybe he's a little bit vulnerable. It's it's meant that he's less touch heavy, but actually what we're seeing is he's got quite a good off the ball game. And and you know you can see I'm beginning to see why Arsene Wenger was confused about this player when he brought him yeah. between whether he was a box to box player or <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly and maybe maybe his first assessment was right maybe he is a box to box player um, but and, and all of those things and we questioned you know whether he would whether his ego 
um, would allow him to kind of cede that role to party. And I think that's been proved to be um, uh, misguided on, on both our parts. Um, but I think what really impressed me last night was not only was he really, really good, but he clearly had that role as well to try and babysit Sambi a little bit, and he did. And there's just another thing. I don't know whether it came across on TV, but I really loved, and this this shows like the, the captaincy side. When Erdegaard went off, he kicked the ball out of play, and that was down below me. Villa were not going to return it. The referee was... I mean, to be fair, mm-hmm. it's they, they don't have to by the rules. Referee wasn't on top of it, though. Um, I don't know. I, he, looked, he seemed like he was looking at WhatsApp most of the evening, anyway. Um, <laughs> and 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 like, but none of the other Arsenal players were really on top of it. Like Erdogan kicked it off, and they kind of lost their concentration for a second. And it, for all the world, Villa had just done that thing where they were like, "Stay quiet, and we'll just restart with a normal throw in." Xhaka was right on top of it. It was in the referee's ear. The referee went over. He went over to the guy holding the ball. And he was like, no, you've got to give it back. You've got to give it back. And we got it back. Now, you know, you question all the gamesmanship of all of that that nonsense and all of these like weird ceremonies we go through in football games to get balls returned. That's what you want your team to do. And I've, I've just seen Arsenal not do that and lose my shit so many times with stuff like kicking the ball out of play. But he was on it. He was alive to the situation. And that's that's really like, you know, that's mature game management. And, you know, we're a young team um, still, and maybe we don't have that. Maybe we don't have all of those cynical rough edges, but but he does. And that is him asserting them in a far more useful way than him kicking people um, and headbutting people and things like that. Like yeah. that, that's the Xhaka shithousing. That's the shithousing you get from a leader. Yeah, well, well said. And, and like... The, the interesting thing with his leadership is, candidly, I don't care about it. I'm sure the players do. It's hard for me to evaluate the value of his leadership. Presumably, he's been a leader the whole time he's been at Arsenal. We haven't been very good the whole time he's been at Arsenal. We're very good now. So what changed? He's playing great. And that's what I care about. And as a credit to Mikel, this is where I think Football gets very simple sometimes. If you have to play 300 perfect passes to get the ball up the pitch and in the net, that's very hard to do. You might do it once every two games. And that's how you wind up being a team that scores a goal once every two games. We don't have to do that now. We can get sloppy goals. We can get easy goals. We can win the ball back on the edge of the final third and tap it in. We we can make two passes and be an on goal. We don't need Granite Shaka to touch the ball 25 times in our defensive third to get the ball into the opposition half. We need him to touch it two times on the edge of the final third to play in Jesus and Martinelli. It's a different thing. Win the ball high, keep the ball high, get the ball in the penalty area. And, I mean, there have been some amazing goals Arsenal have scored the last few seasons flowing back to front moves. I can't think of too many of those this season. There have been a couple. But I can think of a lot more chances and a lot more threat, and it's because of where the ball is. And I, I think that suits all of all the players, of course, but I think it suits Shaka. I, I think when you say to a player, you're going to be getting pressed deep all game long and you need to have 100 passes in the game for us to have a chance to get the ball at the pitch, you're setting a level of performance that very few players are going to be able to reach. And, and now we don't have to do that. And that's why you can have a Shaka playing so well. That's why you can have a Sambi come in for a party and look relatively 
you know, the same roughly in terms of your level of play. There were a lot of interesting moments in this game. I don't really want to focus on the body slam that should have been a penalty. Weird call there. The arm around the head of Jesus by Emmy Martinez. I mean, that could have been a penalty. Um, you know, I think they get a goal that I don't think should be allowed to stand. We could really pull it apart. Could could Ramsdale do better? Could Tomiyasu head it? It's a weird one. It's a weird one. Weird things happen. And I'm inclined to just move beyond it, Tim, unless you have much to say on it. Because like it, I don't know that it, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And I think it's one of those things that happens once a season. I don't know entirely how to react to it. Referee, yeah. keeper, <clears throat> fullback, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think foul or not, Ramsdale probably should have been a bit stronger and there should have been like a bit more protection for him. But I mean, I guess you can say we we are making a bit of a habit of conceding strange goals at the moment. Like we're not getting carved apart, but we are conceding goals that are a little bit weird. And I don't know whether that's just bad luck or whether that's that's something to keep an eye on. But yeah, I don't have a lot more to say about it. I think it was a foul. I do also think that Ramsdale or someone should have like stood in front, stood between Ramsdale and, and, and that player as a well. A defender has to get between them and push him away. Or the other thing you got to do if you're Ramsdale and you're in that situation is you got to make it look like you're trying harder to get around him so you get the foul call. You know what I mean? It, there's a little bit yeah. of play acting for that keepers have to engage in to show that they're being obstructed. Oh, I've got my arms over him. I can't get over him. And I, oh, I fell down, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess my only concern would be Villa did put a lot of their set pieces underneath his crossbar and usually mm-hmm. when a team does that it's because they don't rate the goalkeeper um, yeah, or they, or they think, think he can be got out yeah. yeah yeah well something to keep an eye on um we'll see he may not be playing in old trafford because he felt something late in the game i mean um w- one player i do want to bring up in a, not in a negative way but in a, in a more questioning way than all this effusive praise is tierney I, I, look defensively i think tierney is better than zinchenko and he's doing a fine job back there and there are things about tierney the tempo he can inject with you know carrying the ball forward, running forward. There's still a bit of a hit and hope cross merchant quality to him. That, that's a harshly harsh way to say it, but it's more just that the difference in the way we play or the way he plays versus Inchenko plays the role is so evident. doesn't seem to be hurting us. We dominated Fulham. We dominated uh, Villa, but do, do you think that he still stands out a little bit as maybe a, a piece out of time in terms of the way we're trying to play and the way he likes to play? Cause it, it, it didn't feel like it was totally clicking for me. Yeah, I actually wrote my column about this today, um, about having Taps like mug. two left backs. Yeah, about having two left backs who are very different, and that can be a good thing because it gives you variety um, and you know makes you less predictable. It can be a bad thing because it can unbalance you. And I think uh, which one of those things it ends up being is kind of down to Tierney. And I think there's a challenge to Tierney there, not to become Zinchenko but to maybe do some of those things. And I, I picked out um, you know, a couple of examples like against Fulham that really early in the game, they hit a long diagonal and he reads it beautifully, but he heads it out for a throw-in instead of like chesting it down, passing it and going on. And, and yeah, there were a couple of times last night where he went for the kind of thump the ball up the line clearance where you're like, ah, oh, just pass it out, pass it out. I, I think he can iron that stuff out. I'm not enormously um, worried about it. And I think we've seen he's a smart player and he can play a dual role. He's done it like in a in a kind of back three. Um, and, and actually, I think 
last night, the Villa game, that is actually a game where it was useful to have a different profile of left back, just because with Sambi there and and Xhaka kind of staying close to him, I don't think we were ever going to do that kind of that rotation of position anyway. So actually having a left back whose whose game is, yep, I'm on the outside, I'm on the touchline kind of thing. I, I think that had its use in this game. The challenge for Tierney is to is to not become the player for who who is only you not usable but is, can only excel in certain situations like the challenge to him is it, it reminds me of the Martinelli Smith Rowe kind of competition last season both quite different players what happened well you'd say Smith Rowe's the more technical player Martinelli's the more end product player so what happened Martinelli improved his his um his technique his technicals and Smithrow improved his end product. Like they responded to each other, they looked at each other. I think and said, "What's he good? What's he got that I haven't?" And they respond. And I think that's what what Tierney has to do here um, as well. Albeit, like you say, I think he's a better defender than Zinchenko. And at the same time, yeah. Zinchenko can think, "What can I do to? What does Tierney do in those one on one situations that means that he can play at centre back?" Like I'd put Zinchenko in central midfield. I wouldn't put him at centre back. Um, but I wouldn't put Tierney in midfield either. So, you know, it's, I think I think for me that's one of the most fascinating um, aspects of this season. I'm going to be keeping an eye on how that left back situation unfolds. Because also, if you're Tierney, Zinchenko can play in another position, and if you're Tierney, you want to make the conversation about Zinchenko and Xhaka. Now, it's not. And Jack is playing really, really well. But if you're Tierney, that's the kind of I want to push him away from me, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to put that question onto Granite Xhaka because if what Zinchenko does is really indispensable, he can do it from another area. If I'm playing well and I've got to that's be in point. the team, I can move him somewhere else. It's an interesting situation developing there. Uh, I, it's sort of an interesting situation developing on the right fullback side too. Just I mean Ben White subbed again for Tomiyasu. I think that's more a case of like, if you said to me on the bench, who is the player that is closest to being a nailed on starter of the group? I'd say it's Tomiyasu. Not because better than White or not. It's just, he's he's probably, the, he was a starter, right? And so they can share the game. You don't have to play Ben White 90 minutes because you have someone you can bring in that you feel is just as good and can start. I think Ben White's been brilliant this season, deserves all the credit that he he's getting, rightfully so. I think Tomiyasu's excellent. You want to, and, and Arteta even said after the game, we're trying to get some minutes into his legs. We're trying to ramp him up because he does look a little rusty to me. He doesn't look at his absolute best. And he is a player at his absolute best who, especially if you have a lead, you can bring him on and it's not, you know, for maybe a Ben White. And it's not a defensive sub per se, but he doesn't get beat. He is, a, and to be fair, Ben White hasn't been getting beat. It's just, you can bring on freshness. If the opposition is bringing on a fresh left wide forward, you bring on a fresh Tomiyasu and lock him down. So I, I, I think that's fine. The, the sub who, again, is is getting just rave reviews is Eddie Nketiah. And Eddie Nketiah has, has improved. They, there are just layers to his game now. Now, look, I joked on Twitter, but it's only a partial joke. I think Eddie Nketiah comes on, and he also knows I need to make an impact. And there's the one moment where he carries it all the way up the pitch quite beautifully. And he's got Smithrow on the right and Martinelli on the left. And he shoots it over. And that's, I think, in stoppage time, too. And I'm thinking, if you're in stoppage time and you carry it all the way up the pitch and you've got those players in space and you choose not to pass it, you better get that shot on target and, and find a corner. So that that wasn't the best. Um, but but I think that that it was good and, uh, you know, happy happy to see it. So it, how, how do you feel about... How do you feel about um, 
Eddie Nketiah's sub-performance, again, looking really impressive. And the idea that if Eddie Nketiah is growing as a player, then also our, our attitudes maybe about the, the attacking platoon that we have can be adjusted. Yeah, definitely. He, he's basically what he's done is he, he's improved enormously in every aspect outside of the penalty area. We always knew he had the penalty area part and clearly what he was told was that's not going to be enough to get you a career at Arsenal. Um, it, it might not even be enough to get your Premier League career. Like you've got to do more than just, just be alive in the penalty area. You've got to have your back to goal. You've got to be able to run with the ball. You've got to be able to show and relieve pressure. And what's, what's really kind of, um, really encouraging is he's doing that so well that for me, he's almost becoming like a must bring on. Um, kind of sub, particularly if the game's a bit close. Like, not not only can he do that, he can actually do it to a really high level. Maybe only against tied defenses, I don't know. But the the way he's kind of showing for the ball with his back to goal, getting turned and then running, and he did that so many times. You're right. Like, it's clear he's he's that there are some decision like he's he's done this a few times, like taking a shot on when he should have he should have gone for a pass. We all understand and know why that is. It's because he's not getting in the team and he wants to get in the team and he wants to score goals. I'm sure Arteta would say to him, look, I'd actually still rather you pass the ball and actually that that's going to get you closer um, to the team if you pass in that situation and we score. I, I will look at that like a lot more favourably than you taking a pot shot. But you can understand why it's happening. And he's another one who's banging on the door and he's yeah. another one who you're looking at and just going... Can we get him in somewhere? You know what's cool? And, uh, and we like, can't. Like if, no, what, what's cool is right now, the way I feel, if Eddie and Kedia had to play, I wouldn't be like disappointed at all. If Emil mm. Smith-Rowe had to play, I wouldn't be disappointed at all. Vieira, we don't really know yet, but maybe. And there's not any possibility of them getting just picked over the guys starting on, you know, it may, it may be yeah, yeah. rotating, sharing games, but you know what I mean? Like when you've got players behind the starters who you feel really good about and they can't get on the pitch because the starters are playing out of their skin. Like that's, that's a really good place to be. And that brings us now to old Trafford this weekend. And just as a, la- a last one, we don't have to do a full preview on this, but maybe they've steadied the ship a little bit. I don't know if I fully buy that frankly, but they'll have Casemiro. They'll have Anthony. I don't, you know, I don't know how fully integrated they'll be or whether that helps them to the extent they need it to. My one thing, Tim is, I just don't want to rock up to Old Trafford not being able to put our our best team out there. And already it looks like, you know, no party. Okay, maybe Samby gets that that spot. Maybe no Zinchenko. Maybe no Ramsdale. That's a possibility. Maybe no Odegaard. Of all of those, I mean, the Ramsdale one's a little scary because I don't know if we have Matt Turner. That, that would be a little scary for Old Trafford. I mean, starting your first game for Arsenal away at Old Trafford. Like that, in a position where, men, where psychology comes into it a lot, that... That yeah. would be a test, but it's the Odegaard piece because he has been yeah. this X factor. His level has been so high, and 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 he's the kind of player the way he's playing right now, he can solve problems for you on the pitch that other players can't solve. I, I he took a kick, so it's an impact thing. It may be a pain tolerance thing. Yeah. We'll see. Um, just quickly, I, I think we can go to Old Trafford and win. Dangerous thing to say, but I do think not having Odegaard and potentially Ramsdale, but not having Odegaard specifically would be the thing that would really change my, what I'm expecting or asking for from that fixture. 
Yeah, definitely. And we've seen the last couple of games, like the first challenge of the season in terms of team selection, because we started the same team in the first three games, having started that team in our last two preseason friendlies. Obviously, that wasn't going to hold forever. Um, and now we've had like a bit of a test with Party and um, Zinchenko and now Elneny, and they all operate in the same area of the pitch. So, like, the, the weird thing is, like, cause, but, but the forward line's been untouched. That's the kind of thing at the moment. But Odegaard coming out of there, like, Vieira's not going to be ready for that. And, and obviously it was Smith Rowe that came on last night. So it's clear, I think, they've made a decision that Vieira's not going to see any action until the Europa League, which, which, which is fine. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't have the information to challenge that. So it'd be Smith Rowe. But I, I think, you know, Smith Rowe plays that role in a very, very different way. I, I, I agree. I, I think that would be a massive, massive blow to be without Erdegaard. I almost think it's one of those where you just go, if it takes an injection or something, so long as it's not like, if, like you say, if it's like a pain thing rather than anything else, if it takes an injection or something like that, I wouldn't do that for many. Like if we're playing Villa, coming into Villa, I'd go, all right, play Smith-Rowe, fine. But for this game, yeah, I think we really need Erdegaard for this game. So I'm definitely going to be crossing my fingers about that one, particularly, like you say, because we're already without some key players. And, and it kind of feels like after we're seeing it with Liverpool, right? It's one thing to lose Thiago, but when you lose Nunez and Jota on top of that and then Gomez and too many pieces come out, it's it starts to get very difficult to manage. If you had to miss Zurich away, fine. Yeah, if you have exactly. to miss Everton at I don't, home, I don't want him. I don't want him in that game anyway. Yeah, anyway, yeah well, of course, yeah. Maybe if on he has the to bench. Miss Everton at home, I'll live with it. Has to miss PSV at home. I, I hope he would. Brentford away, right before the international break. You'd like to have him there. That's a tough fixture. Then it's a two-week break. But my point is, to your point, like if if he can play at Old Trafford and not just get through the game, if he can be Odegaard at Old Trafford, you really have until October first, so almost a month before we host Tottenham and before it gets really, really, really tricky. So to your point, if you're taking a risk and it's the impact kind of injury, not the kind that's going to be aggravated, I'm probably rolling to roll the dice. Let's leave it there. Hopefully deadline day brings us a little something. Uh, looks like Bellerin going to Barca and a player I've had a lot of affection for. So we, we certainly wish him well. And I thank him for his time at Arsenal. Um, you know, a guy who looked like he was on the path to superstardom, did his knee and, I don't think he ever came back looking like himself, but that's how it goes. Um, Douglas Luiz, I'd, I'd be happy for it. I think, you know, it just makes us a little bit stronger, but we have played five football matches, and and again, we have won five football matches. So that that is the goal, and it's mission accomplished. We went the entire month of August perfect, and it sets us up for a hell of a season, and I'm so happy to have you along for the ride. We'll probably have some uh, post-deadline day content on the Patreon side, and uh, an instant reaction coming up uh, to the Old Trafford game. You don't want to miss that, obviously. So if you want to join us on Patreon, we'd love to have you there. But if not, we'd love to have you here. Tim's on Twitter. So, bro, thanks, Tim. My pleasure, as always. Enjoy the window slamming shut. Enjoy victory, hopefully, at Old Trafford. We love you, and we'll talk to you after Arsenal 10. United know. <laughs>